Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. A few weeks ago, my daughter Elise uh, watched Lion King for the first time. And this was a life-changing event for her. She loved it. As her dad, though, it's really weird sitting down with a three-year-old to watch movies that I remember watching in the theaters as a kid. And so I'm officially at that point where I'm like, oh, yes, I'm old. Uh, there are also, if you watch Disney movies now as an adult, there are a lot of questions that I have about what's going on in those things. It, they, they get weird. Uh, but after watching Lion King, she wanted to watch more Disney movies. So we're currently watching Brave, Inside Out, Aladdin, Emperor's New Groove on repeat way too many times in a given day. We're actually taking special trips to the library because the library has DVDs that you can rent. So we went yesterday, more Disney movies. Uh, Every morning we drive to daycare and we're listening to Let It Go, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, and the entire soundtrack from Moana, which isn't that bad. So it's growing on me a little bit. But my life is like complete Disney right now and I'm just not really sure how how I feel about it. And one of the movies that she hasn't watched yet, but I'm excited to watch with her, is Hercules. And so I don't know why my favorite Disney movie is Hercules. And so I want to watch with her, but I'm hesitant because she's three years old. And Hercules is actually a pretty scary movie. So there are different characters in it, one of which is the Aramanthian boar, which like for a three-year-old, you might be a little bit weirded out by that. Hydra, uh, the snake that regenerates its heads, right? The scene where he gets swallowed and he takes a sword and like cuts its head off and three more pop up. And so I'm afraid that's going to terrify her a little bit. But the scariest, especially for a three-year-old, has got to be Cerberus. And so in Greek mythology, Cerberus is the three-headed dog of the underworld. Fun fact, the word Cerberus in Greek literally means spotted. And so the great and terrifying god of the underworld, Hades, literally named his dog Spot. According to Greek legend, Cerberus has razor-sharp teeth and a poisonous bite. His look was so dreadful that anyone who looked upon him was immediately turned into stone. He had a serpent's tail and lion's claws. But the most interesting thing about the legend of Cerberus is that the great guard dog of Hades would actually greet newcomers who were arriving to the underworld with excitement, much like a puppy would when you come home. In fact, what makes Cerberus a very interesting uh, character in Greek mythology is that he's not really a guard dog in the normal sense. Cerberus was actually there to viciously attack anyone who was trying to leave the gates of hell to return to the land of the living. Cerberus was there to stop people from having life and escaping death. Now, doesn't that feel kind of familiar? Something, more importantly, someone that keeps you from leaving your own personal hell. Sometimes it's a person that keeps you from moving forward in your life, in your relationship, in your marriage, your finances, your job, your parenting. Cerberus might be a Greek fairy tale, but I think we'd all agree that we have people in our life that act just like that. People who stop us from moving from death to life. People who hinder us from breaking free from our own harmful behavior. People who criticize us as we work to make a real change and become different people. People who attack us when we try to move forward in our lives. People that hold us back physically, mentally, and emotionally. Today we're finishing up our series on relationships called Bad Blood. And so over the last two weeks, we've talked about how we are designed to be in healthy and life-giving relationships. That the first problem that ever existed in the world was that Adam was alone. God created man, man was alone. He said, this is not good. So we are not meant to be alone. We spent time learning how to build the types of relationships that we need and want and actually crave and long for. And we said this each week, you don't get relationships, you build them. And so we've talked about how the foundation of all healthy relationships is trust and honesty and commitment. 
We've talked about how we only control 50% of the relationships that we're in, and that's ourselves. And because we can only control ourselves, we should choose to be people who show love, bring honor, and extend grace to every single one of our relationships. But the one thing we haven't talked about yet is what do we do when we are in a toxic relationship? Dr. Lillian Glass says that a toxic relationship is any relationship between people who don't support each other, where there's conflict and one seeks to undermine the other, where there's competition, where there's disrespect and a lack of cohesiveness. She continues to say that while every relationship goes through ups and downs, a toxic relationship is consistently unpleasant and draining for the people in it to the point that negative moments outweigh the positive moments for both participants. Dr. Kristen Fuller adds that toxic relationships are mentally, emotionally, and possibly even physically damaging to one or both people in that relationship. And so what do we do when we are in those types of relationships? What do we do when we are in toxic relationships? What do we do when we are in a dating relationship that is centered on selfishness and pride instead of support and love? What do we do when we have a coworker who's constantly attacking us, trying to break us down? What do, we, what do we do when we have family members who don't truly want what's best for us? What do we do when we are locked into relationships that are toxic, where the goal of the other person is to keep us from moving forward in our relationship, as a couple, as friends, or even in our life? Two things I want to say before we dig into this topic. First, if you are in a toxic marriage and you don't know what to do, your first step is marriage counseling. Because you both made commitments to honor and cherish one another, you've come together as one flesh, and you need to seek out professional guidance that goes well beyond this topic today. And so if you are married and you are in a toxic marriage, this isn't an out for you. It isn't. This is about relationships that we have with friends and family and coworkers. But if that is your marriage, you need to seek out help outside of what will be offered today. Come talk to me. We, we work with a wonderful counselor in this area who will do everything they can to help you figure out what to do with the marriage that you're in. The second thing is this. If you are in an abusive relationship, whether that's physically, mentally, sexually, or emotionally, and you are too afraid to get out of that relationship, come find me. Come talk to me, come talk to one of our leaders here at Collective, because we wanna do everything we can to help you re release yourself from that relationship. Because we're gonna talk about toxic relationships, and we're gonna talk about those people in our life that bring us down, but there's a different level when things get abusive, right? And so if you feel like you are in that space and you don't know what to do, come find me, come talk to one of our leaders. We'll do everything we can to help you take your next step. When you think about your relationships, think about it this way. Think about it like a dinner table. Now, some of us who are introverts would have a table with a few seats, two, three, four, preferably just one for me. Extroverts would have one of those tables that has all the gears inside, so as you pull it apart, there's like a leaf and another leaf, and it extends, and before you know it, there's like 30 people sitting there. But no matter how big of a table, you, you get to decide who sits there. You get to decide who gets a seat. You get to decide what relationships you have, the voices that you listen to, the people that you trust. And some of you have empty seats that you need to fill up with the right types of relationships, right? You need to fill those up with healthy and life-giving relationships. Some of you have people sitting at your table, though, that you need to remove because they are toxic. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. So if the people that are sitting at your table are selfish, you will be selfish. If the people sitting at your table are hateful, you will be hateful. Your friends determine the direction of your future because bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise. This makes sense. If your table is full of people who are wise, you will gain wisdom. Same is true as your, if your table is full of people who are loving, you will be more loving. But then the verse actually continues. It says, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools, right? And we think becomes foolish. That would make sense. But this is actually what it says. 
Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. The people that you give seats to at your table have an impact on who you are and how you live your life. They impact how you treat others. They impact how you see yourself. They impact the joy that you have. So what if you have given a seat at your table to someone who is toxic? A few years ago, uh, my wife and I were invited to a retreat for pastors and their wives. And to be honest, we really didn't want to attend because I think pastors are boring. And so being stuck with them for three days felt more like a punishment than a retreat to me. The retreat was also in Baltimore, but we had to stay in a hotel, which living in Frederick is like, I don't really want to drive back, or I don't want to stay in a hotel. I'd rather drive back and forth so we can see our daughter at night. To make matters worse, it actually ended on my wife's 30th birthday. And so initially we declined. We, we weren't really interested in going, but the church putting on the retreat kept pushing. And my mentor, who was actually leading it, challenged us to go. And so eventually we reluctantly went, and the retreat was just a few days. It involved some teaching, small group discussion, discussions, a lot of really good food, which actually made it worth it in the end. We learned about leading staff, church systems and growth, sermon writing and scheduling, a bunch of stuff that only pastors would be interested in. But on the last night of the, the retreat, things changed a bit when we began to talk about relationships. The lead pastor shared how he and his wife created boundaries, developed trusted friends, and created a healthy balance in, the lives, in their lives when it came to relationships. All very good stuff. But then he started to share some of the toxic relationships that he had experienced through the years and how they made the decision to end those relationships, to walk away from those relationships. And being completely honest, it changed my life. Now here's what he said. People will hurt you. They will let you down. They will fall short. Sometimes it's unintentional. Many times it's on purpose. When you are in relationships, pain is a byproduct. Even in the best friendships, working relationships, parent-child relationships, you will get hurt. The question is, how do you know when it's time to get out? How do you know when it's toxic? How do you know when it's time to leave? And then he wrote this on the whiteboard. He wrote, remorse plus reconciliation equals relationship. When people hurt you, which they will hurt you, or when you hurt other people, in order for there to be a continued relationship, there has to be remorse and reconciliation. Remorse is a deep regret or guilt when a wrong is committed. Remorse leads to repentance. Now, repentance means to turn around or to change your mind. So when people feel remorse, what they want to do is they want to change, hopefully, right? If they actually have remorse. Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship. It comes from the French word reconciliere, which better translates to bring together again, to regain, or my favorite is to win over again. So to reconcile relationship means you win that relationship over again. Reconciliation can only happen if the foundation of your relationship is built on trust, honesty, and commitment. That's when it can be brought together. That's when it can be mended. But without remorse and without reconciliation, you won't have a relationship, or at least you won't have a healthy one. And that isn't just true in our relationships with other people. It's actually true in our relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Another word for sorrow is remorse. When we realize that we fall short, that we sin, that we walk out of alignment with how God wants us to live, godly remorse leads us to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn away from that life and turn toward a relationship with God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The reason why we repent and turn toward God is because our relationship can be restored through Jesus. See, our sin creates a debt that we cannot pay, and it actually separates us from God. So God sent Jesus to live a perfect life to pay the penalty 
on the cross that our sin creates. And in doing so, what God did is he restored our relationship back to him. He reconciled it so our relationship with God can be healed and our relationship with God can actually exist. And for some of you, you feel like your relationship with God is non-existent or broken, or maybe you'd even say it's toxic. And remember, you can only control you in relationships. So the question is, have you repented? Have you turned away? Have you felt that remorse and decided to move in a different direction? Have you been reconciled? Have you put your faith in him? Have you created a foundation where there's trust in him? The way that you do that is to publicly declare Jesus as your Lord and leader and get baptized. That's how you tangibly put your trust in him. That's how you start a relationship with him because remorse and reconciliation lead to a relationship. Jesus is offering love and honor and grace. He's offering a relationship to us, but you have to accept it. And so when I heard this about relationships at the retreat, I immediately felt a weight lifted from me. Like, I'm not even kidding. I felt this burden go away. It was a four-year-old burden that had been on my shoulders, a weight that I knew that I was carrying, but I didn't actually know how to get rid of. You see, I was in a toxic relationship that I didn't think I was allowed to walk away from. I felt like I was obligated to be friends with this person because he was a former boss of mine. He was a former pastor of mine. He, we had mutual friends. But he had done some major damage to me, and for years I had given him a seat at my table and had screwed with my confidence. It had made me afraid to trust people who were in authority over me. And to be honest, it put a really huge chip on my shoulder when it came to the church. But instead of ending this relationship, I did what everyone does. I tried to grin and bear it. This relationship, though, was killing me. And after two years of counseling where this was a topic that we talked about all the time, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake the hurt. I couldn't shake the pain that I felt when we bumped into each other at conferences or meetings and he would smile and hug me like we were best friends. I couldn't shake the fact that he pretended that there was love and honor and grace in our relationship. But I would do what so many of us do when we have these types of unhealthy and toxic relationships. I would smile and I'd pretend like I was happy to see him. I would lie through my teeth. I would try my best to be friendly. And when the interaction was over, I would retreat to my car or a bathroom or any quiet place that I could find and I would just lose it. Sometimes I would feel anger. Sometimes I'll feel, feel sadness, but mostly I always felt like I was trapped. I always felt like I was stuck in this relationship I couldn't get rid of or walk out of and, and this burden that I carried, I felt like it was gonna be with me forever. And I would think, how could this person continue to act like everything was okay after everything that he did? He lied. He lied to my face. He lied to save his own ego. He lied, lied at the cost of my family. He threw me under the bus so he didn't have to own up to his mistakes. He told me that I wasn't good enough. He told me that I would never be a good pastor. He lied to other people about me, destroying years of hard work and growth and experience, and it crushed me. To make matters worse, he knew, well enough, uh, he knew me well enough to know that I have trust issues when it comes to authority, and that authority had hurt me in the past, and he took advantage of that. He didn't even care. He actually used it against me. And so I heard at this retreat, I heard my mentor say that without remorse and reconciliation, there couldn't be a relationship. I felt like I was no longer a prisoner to this distorted Christian thought that you had to be best friends with every person in the world because WWJD, what would Jesus do? Because the truth is, even though there was an attempt at reconciliation, he never showed remorse. He never showed remorse. He never apologized. When I confronted him about the situation, he told me that he was sorry I felt that way, and he was just trying to help us. There was no remorse. It was in this moment when I realized that we didn't have to have a relationship. I didn't need to pretend like we were friends. I didn't have to give him a seat at my table. A relationship without remorse leads to a toxic relationship 
where there is no trust or honesty and you are just waiting for the other person to hurt you again. A relationship without reconciliation leads to a toxic relationship where one person feels trapped or enslaved to the other because of the pain that they've caused. And that was me. And in that moment, I realized that I didn't have to fake it or force it anymore. And some of you are in that place. Some of you feel that way with other people in your life, and you don't have to feel that way. If you are currently in a relationship where there has been pain, where someone has lied to you, someone has used their words to break you down, someone has let you down, fallen short, and there is no remorse or reconciliation, you are in a one-sided relationship. That is toxic. Now, let me be clear, though. People will hurt you. That's a part of life. People will hurt you intentionally or unintentionally. So the question is not whether or not people hurt you. It's whether or not they feel remorse, whether or not they repent, whether or not they want to reconcile that relationship with you. If they choose not to do that, it's one-sided. It's toxic. And many of you, as as we work through this topic, you already know what relationship in your life is that way. You already know what relationship is unhealthy. I don't even have to explain it to you. And there's already that person in your mind that breaks you down, that beats you down, that never picks you back up. And you're realizing there is no remorse. There is no reconciliation. Why are you in that relationship? I know for some of us, we feel like we have to keep these relationships. We feel like we're stuck in them, but we're not. This week while I was writing this sermon, uh, coincidentally, a very prominent Christian writer and speaker actually posted Uh, on toxic relationships on Twitter, and this is what she wrote. She said, when we start talking, cutting off all toxic relationships, we may be talking our way right out of the gospel of Jesus. Now, this person says a lot of great things, a lot of great books, a lot of great conferences. This is not one of them. If you are staying in toxic relationships because someone has guilted you into thinking that's what Jesus would do, that's wrong. Did Jesus love everyone? Yes. Did he call us to do the same thing? Absolutely. Does he say, forgive those who hurt you? 100%. But it's arrogant to think that you are the person's only hope to know the goodness of Jesus. And if that's the reason why you're sticking in the relationships where every single day you are beat down and move further away from God, that's toxic, don't do that. Even Jesus in Matthew 16 told Peter, his closest friend, that he was a stumbling block. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, Peter would eventually show remorse and they would reconcile their relationship. And Peter would do great things in creating the church as we know it. But Peter, who is Jesus' best friend, almost watched his relationship end because he was selfish. And Jesus, as a human person, wasn't going to let Peter slow him down and stop him from doing what what he came to earth to do. Even Jesus had relationships that were toxic at times. Now, the good news is with that, what Peter would reconcile and he would feel remorse. But even Jesus told Peter, get behind me. And so you have relationships that bring you more pain than peace, more anger than joy, that move you further away from the person that God calls you to be. And you need to figure out if those relationships are ones that you should be in because you don't have to give those people a seat at your table. In fact, sometimes loving people well means ending relationships that only bring pain, right? Because you're stuck in this cycle of toxic where you feel pain and you try to fix it and maybe they kind of give it a halfway attempt and eventually there becomes more pain. Releasing people sometimes shows them the love of God more than anything that you could do in a relationship with them. And so if you are in a toxic relationship, you can walk away. Or at least what you can do is redefine your relationship and the boundaries that go with it so that the person doesn't have a large impact on your life and who you are as a person. Because when it comes down to it, you choose who sits at your table and who is merely a person that you bump into from time to time. You get to choose who has a voice. You get to choose who has an impact on your life. 
To be clear though, this doesn't mean that when you end these types of relationships that you try to hurt these people. This doesn't mean that you take revenge. In fact, Jesus teaches us that even though people might be toxic and even though they might have hurt us and even though they did nothing but bring pain in our lives that we're actually called to still love them. Jesus says in Luke 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You can, you can only control you in relationships. So while you can end unhealthy relationships, you can also choose to surround yourself with the right people. And past broken relationships, past pain can't dictate your present friendships. You still have to fill up those seats at your table with people that you trust. It's still your choice. You have to choose wisely. But the question that we'll all wrestle with is how do you know if you can trust someone? And this is the tricky part. In order to know if you can trust someone, you have to trust them. And what happens is it's actually proven over time. Luke 7 says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. What this means is over time, you will figure out if this person is trustworthy. You can learn to trust someone because over time, it will become clear that they want good for you. And you do this by trusting them with a little. This is what Jesus would do. And then when those people are faithful with a little, you can give them some more. And then you can work toward trusting them with a lot. But we have to trust people a little to see if they can be trusted with more. And that's really hard for us because most of us are guarded. We hold back, we don't open up. Because when you trust someone like that, what you're doing is you're giving them an opportunity to hurt you, right? That's called being vulnerable. And nobody wants to be vulnerable. We all want the other person in our life to be vulnerable, but we don't want it for ourselves. Nobody votes, let's all be vulnerable, right? Nobody does that. But the word vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnerare, and this means capable of being wounded, open to risk and damage. By definition, being vulnerable means you could get hurt. And for some of us, we have a lot of good reasons not to be vulnerable. We have a lot of good reasons to be guarded. For a lot of us, we can point to people that we one time trusted, we thought were friends, we thought loved us, we thought they had our best interest at heart, but they delivered wounds as if they were an enemy. And the result is that we got hurt. We were wounded. And so we've made a vow, never again. I'm not opening up again. And we've closed off our hearts. We protect our heart. And listen to me, that makes a lot of sense. It really does. As someone who's experienced that type of pain, I get it. The problem is, though, that doing that comes with a lot of unintended consequences. C.S. Lewis talks about these consequences in his book called The Four Loves. He said it this way, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. In other words, and listen to what I'm saying here, I know that there's a real risk. I'm not going to pretend otherwise we're not going to skate over this. There's a real risk that you could get burned. That if you open up, you get vulnerable with people. People are people. People get hurt. People, people have sin. We walk away from God. People make mistakes. But the alternative to being vulnerable is living a cold and dark life. I think the primary reason we avoid being vulnerable with others is that we have this really good desire and it's a good desire, but we desire safety. We want to be safe, and that's a good thing. But whenever we make a good thing an ultimate thing, ultimately that good thing becomes a very destructive thing. 
And the same is true with safety. When you make safety the ultimate thing in your life, you end up doing things that become very, very destructive. And so the reason I don't show you who I really am, the reason why I don't open up and trust you with what's going on in my life or what I'm struggling with is usually based on the fact that I'm afraid people will hurt me. I'm afraid that you will hurt me. I'm afraid that you will take that information about me and use it against me as a weapon because that's what I've experienced in the past. And so what we're trying to obtain is this good thing called safety, but what we get when we try to obtain safety is isolation. And isolation by definition is not safe. If you don't believe me, Google Planet Earth episodes involving wolves. Don't actually Google it, it'll make you really sad. In one of the episodes, there's actually a herd of buffalo that are being hunted by wolves. And what wolves do when they're hunting is they actually isolate one of the buffalo. And their goal is to isolate it from the herd so they can take it down and kill it. Isolation, by definition, is not safe. Now listen to me. The next thing I'm going to say is the key for a lot of us. If there's one thing that you can take away from this series, hopefully it's not Taylor Swift, it's this. Some of us have done half of the enemy's work for him by isolating ourselves. We have an enemy out there whose goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. And his first manner of business is to isolate us from other people. It's to push us to be alone. It's to make us think that we don't have anyone that understands how we feel or understands what we're going through or, or even the ego of trying to do things by ourselves. And so the first thing that Satan wants us to do is be isolated. And so for some of us, conveniently for him, we've done half the work by refusing to have real relationships and by isolating ourselves. The primary reason why I've done this in my own life is because of pride. Pride that I'm strong enough, that I can walk alone, that I can do all this by myself. And these are all lies born out of fear and out of pride. So out of our desire for safety, what we end up doing are things that are far less safe. And a lot of us can look at our life and say without a doubt, some of the worst decisions that we've ever made, some of the most destructive decisions that we've ever made were all made in isolation. Some of the most destructive choices we have made, we made alone without anyone else's input. So not only do we isolate ourselves, do you know what else we do? We hide. Because if someone sees us for who we really are, what we've really done, we're afraid that they will recoil and run away. We're afraid that people will abandon us. Worse yet, that they might use that moment of vulnerability and attack us. So even amongst the crowd, some of us are very proficient at hiding. Let's be honest, that's the reason why some of you won't join one of the collectives here, the small groups that we have, or even join the team, is because it's harder to hide when you're surrounded by a small group of people. But let me ask you this, Joe, in your life, when someone has been vulnerable, when they've opened up to you in a real, true, and authentic way, when you know that they're really giving you something that was had to share, that they were trusting you with information, that they were potentially saying something to you that could be embarrassing, when someone is vulnerable to you, does that make them more or less attractive? And I don't mean romantically, I just mean in general as people. Does that make you want to run away from that person? Or does it make you want to lean in? Do you feel closer to that person? We, we want to lean in. Like, of course we feel closer to that person. You care more about that person. It makes you want to trust that person more because they trusted you with something. And now you understand that there are some people in here that don't like what I'm saying. They have an objective to this. And you are thinking there are people out there that when they see someone being vulnerable, they attack. And that's true. You're right. There are people who are like that. And those people are called wolves. And But the reason, and we have to understand this, the reason certain people attack when we get vulnerable is usually because those people have been so deeply hurt themselves that they follow the old adage, hurt people, hurt people, right? For most of us, most of the time, vulnerability makes someone more attractive to us, not less. 
And when someone is willing to be vulnerable and honest, and that is met by us with vulnerability and honesty, that brings people together, not apart. It's the opposite of isolation. It brings us together and it actually gives you what you think you need. It gives you safety. And so in our efforts to gain safety, we often do two things that don't provide us with safety. We isolate and we hide, but that's not how we were designed. That's not how we were created. We were not meant to be alone. We were not meant to be isolated. We were meant to be protected and safe inside of community. And so as we finish up this series, uh, these are the questions that we have to wrestle with. Who is at your table? Do you need to have more people at your table? Do you need to have less people at your table? What are their motivations? Do they want good for you? Are they toxic? Are they wise? Are they unwise as the Bible defines wisdom? Who shouldn't be at your table? You can be friends with people, but not let them speak into the most important things in your life. Who needs a voice? Have you given the people at your table permission to speak into your life and really challenge you and push you and help you be the person God calls you to be? And are you being honest with them? The whole thing falls apart if in the end you're lying. The whole thing falls apart if you have these people surrounding you to support you if you're being dishonest. But the thing is, it's your table. God has given it to you and he's trusted you with a small piece of his kingdom and you can't do it alone. You were not meant to. Jesus himself walked around on this earth and had 12 men that he spent his time with. He loved them, he cared about them, he cried with them, he, he was angry with them, he was angry at them. They had a real relationship. So Jesus had 12 men and then inside of that, he had three he was really close to and then he had, he had one that he was the closest with and that was Peter. And if you've read anything in the New Testament or anything with Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'll know that that relationship was not perfect. That relationship had pain, but it constantly had remorse and reconciliation from Peter that allowed it to be so good. And here's the thing, and I'm gonna put this very bluntly. Some of us think that we are stronger than Jesus. A lot of us think we are stronger than Jesus. The savior of the world needed friends. And a lot of us think that we don't. And the reason that any of us can have the type of friendships that we want or have the type of friendships that we long for and that we talked about in the series is because of the kind of friend that Jesus has been to us. And so we're gonna finish with this. This is the type of friend that Jesus is and the type of friend he calls us to be in John 15. This is what it says. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, um, that ultimately when it comes to relationships in our life, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God, that, that at the end of the day, the example that we have is you. Uh, God, that the example for relationships in the bar that you set is one that we can strive for and that we don't have to figure it out on our own. I mean, God, ultimately, we don't have to use uh, our childhood or our past pain or even so, social media, media, television, whatever it may be, to determine how we have these relationships, God, but we have you as the example. God, thank you so much that you love us in a way that you give up your own life for us, that you would call us friends, that you would care about us, even though we fall short and even though we mess up. God, I pray this week as we wrestle with relationships and the people that are in our life, God, I pray that we really think about who's at our table. 
And for the people that are at our table that are life-giving, God, I pray that we can surround ourselves with more people just like that. But God, for the people that are at our table that are speaking into our life that are toxic and that are hurtful and move us away from you and move us out of healthy relationships, God, I pray that we figure out a way to move on, to redefine boundaries, to release that relationship. God, help us do that this week as we wrestle with those people. And God, ultimately help us in everything that we do, love you well and show other people what your love looks like. God, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.